This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and uh, today we're very happy to have with us Galit Atlas. Um, we'll be talking with her about her most recent publication, a book from Rutledge, The Enigma of Desire, Sex, Longing, and Belonging in Psychoanalysis. Welcome, Galit. Hello. Hello, hello. <laughs> hello, hello. Um, it's really a delight to have you on the show. And I have to, I guess, journalistically, full disclosure, I see that I'm thanked in this book. And in the acknowledgments, I was like, oh. <laughs> so, you know, if I was like really a hardcore journalist, I guess I would not be, um, I don't, I, in the New York Times. Don't be so sure. Don't okay. be so sure. <laughs> Exactly. So I thought, like, well, let me just let me just tell everyone. Yes, we know each other. Yes, we're friends. And um, and, uh, you know, I'm excited to um, to talk to you about the book. I've been reading your your articles um, over the years and getting familiar with um, how you're thinking and and how you're working. Um, So I the first question that we tend to ask in New Books and Psychoanalysis is, what prompted you? What drove you? However you want to put it. Um, what what generated your desire to write this particular book? So can we begin there? Oh, absolutely. And that's a, it's, it's a good question, but I'm not sure I have only one answer for that. Uh, I think there is something... First of all, writing was always part of my life. And so I didn't feel, uh, you know, there was no specific desire to write a book. The book was written kind of by itself. And at the end, I took everything that I wrote and I made it to a book. Mm-hmm. And so it, there was something about, you know, maybe you probably know about my life mm-hmm. that writing a book is not so easy Right. Uh, because I have a hectic life. So it is, there is something about this book that is written uh, in the car and in <laughs> while I'm cooking. <laughs> and uh, there is a lot of, I, I can block myself and just write. And, and the funny thing, I think there are, in retrospect, I found that there are a lot of references to cooking. Yeah. And the kitchen, mm-hmm. and I, I only knew that when I kind of went over it and wrote the introduction, and I added it to the introduction because it was interesting to see that I didn't know that I was cooking in the book, 
and there are a lot of spices that leaked into the writing. Yeah, well, that that's that's really clear. I mean, actually, I'm interested in terms of your writing process because I know you do have a very busy life. You have, you know, you have three kids, you have a love life, mm-hmm. you have, you know, you're teaching, you're you're, you know, working with patients. And were you did you dictate to yourself? I mean, did, were you at the computer? Were you speaking into your, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that thing is on the iPhone? You know, how, I mean, how how did you manage yeah. to? put this book together um, while you were in the middle of so many, so many other things? Yeah, you know, both. First of all, I believe in, I don't believe in inspiration, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I believe in working. And so I had hours that I blocked for writing. And I still do. You know, I have once a week that I write for a few hours. And, you know, I have this uh, famous writer who, who uh, Israeli writer, Albert Yeshua, who said, when I write, it's like going to the grocery shop. You know, it's, it's like owning a gro- grocery shop. You know, you open it every minute, every morning. Sometimes people come, sometimes they don't come. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's, you know, it's work. Right. And so that's part of it. The other part is that I always have a notebook with me. And wherever I go, I, while I'm in the process of writing something, I'm always writing when I, you know, when I'm on the way, I don't always look when I cross the street, <laughs> uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, when I am, uh, you know, doing other things, I also have thoughts and, and process my writing. So you, you basically, you, what you're saying, I think is that you have access, um, that, that you're the you're the kind of person who has access to sort of multiple registers within herself uh, and uh, frequently and can sort of you know be be functioning pragmatically and enigmatically. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's where I that's where I led you to the enigmatic and pragmatic. Yeah. So, so yeah. let's let's talk about that. I mean, so the book the book does the the book covers a lot of. Um, a lot of ground. It covers, you know, thinking about motherhood, thinking about sexuality, um, thinking about, I think, listening, um, how, uh, how the analyst, um, works when thinking about the pragmatic and the enigmatic. Um, and so we have these binaries, conscious, unconscious, internal, external, masculine, feminine, you know, et cetera. How would you describe what the addition of pragmatic, enigmatic, what, what does this bring to the cycle? Th- these, concepts as you're working with them, what do they bring to the psychoanalytic encounter? You know, I think, first of all, the main paper chapter that started as a paper that I introduced these ideas were, it uh, is the enigma of desire. And when I wrote that chapter, it was clear that I'm dealing with the, the split between uh, psychoanalysis and research even, you know, and you can see that in the book there is a lot of, there are a lot of references to infant research and yep. Beatrice Beebe uh, is one of my mothers, uh, like uh, Jessica Benjamin and Adrian Harris and uh, I opened the book with with the the confession that my first mother was a Kleinian. And, <laughs> That's clear. You can feel. I feel her throughout the book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Some people think that that, that I say it that way because uh, uh, because it's embarrassing, <laughs> but it's not. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think that there is something about trying to integrate uh, some ideas that come from research 
and very traditional psychoanalysis mm -hmm. that are, by definition, I think, contradicting, you know, is a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, and a lot of uh, the, the feedback that I got on the first draft of, of The Enigma of Desire, the, the chapter, was you're confusing languages. So I felt that there was something that was necessary, especially, and, and here I think the enigmatic and the pragmatic are not necessarily related to uh, conscious and unconscious. Mm -hmm. They, they're both end, but they're not, it's not that the enigmatic is unconscious and the pragmatic is conscious. It is more about seen and unseen, the logical, the practical, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the thing that we can see and grasp mm -hmm. versus the un, what is happening under the surface, this, this, the, the thing that has no words, that that we can never fully define, that which is hard, hard to define and more puzzling, I would say, mm -hmm. uh, hard to observe, which is definitely not research, right? Because in the research, we basically research what we, what we see and can measure. And so that was missing for me, you know, that back and forth between what we can actually see and measure and what we cannot, can, can never measure, right. right? And I'm thinking it goes, even goes back to some early arguments. And I'm thinking about, uh, for example, Andre Green's paper where, uh, that he wrote for Freud's birthday, yeah. uh, that is asking about this, is sexuality, sexuality, anything to do yeah. with psychoanalysis, right? The question of, and in that paper, he attacks the the, the whole idea of, of infant obs observation, mm -hmm. saying that, in fact, what we observe is a very small part of the infant's life because most of the time, infants are sleeping, right? <laughs> so they're not interacting. Uh -huh. And when in infant observation, what you measure is the, the little interaction that they have. And what about the rest of the time, right? So there is... Also that voice, right? And I'm trying to find a way, because a, a way to integrate the two, because for me that was missing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I I I just realized uh, I I believe that I have seen read something that you wrote, and it might have been a dissertation. Correct uh, on God, it, this is you, right? Uh, it was a dissertation about. Um, or maybe it was your final paper in your in your training, but about children who are sexually yes. abused, susceptibility to sexual abuse. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, it's fu it's funny. Like I hadn't, as you're talking now, I was like, my God, you've been working this terrain for quite a while. Would you talk a little? It's not really in the book, but I think it's implicit mm -hmm. in the book. Could you say a little bit about about that dissertation and and what your question was? Because it's about research. But it's a very creative use of, of 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 research that it's a it's truly a precursor to what what you uh, have written here. I think it's really funny you're bringing this because I, I I almost forgot about it, and only in the last year, Lou Aaron and I are writing a new book that is called Dramatic Dialogues: uh, Contemporary Clinical Practice, and it the idea is really about. The, the dramatization and drama in there in, in this in sessions it's a very clinical book mm -hmm. and 
when we start writing this, I, I suddenly said, hey, you know, I did something like that long, many, many years ago. And then I went to my dissertation for the first time after, like, I, I think it was many years ago, uh, after I don't know how long. And I read it again, and, I, and I'm using some things from that uh, dissertation that I've actually never used before for our book. The dissertation was a combination of psychoanalysis and, and drama therapy and, uh, and related to, you know, I started as a child therapist, mm-hmm. so related to my work with children. But also there is a lot of enigma in this research. You know, one interesting story, first of all, was that I decided at some point to use for my research the, the fairy tale Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that part of my idea was that through playing with kids, the fairy tale, you could assess something about their susceptibility to sexual abuse. A lot of the archetypes in these, in fairy tales in general, but I narrowed it to this, but I I found it in many fairy tales, right? Right. About being alone in the woods, about being uh, hungry. And so I start playing with kids. uh, And for... uh, at that moment, all, almost every child I treated that time suddenly asked me to play Red Riding Hood. <laughs> and so that was really interesting. And part of what we, what I found is that, uh, you know, Red Riding Hood is walking in the, in the, in the woods with a basket full with food and most kids eat, are eating the food on their way to the grandmother. Right. And, uh, you know, things like that. And, and I had, I developed an assessment tool that could really, uh, you know, Think about what makes kids more susceptible to uh, to getting attached to, to strangers and to going with uh, and to not reporting abuse and you know. Mm-hmm. So that was the my research from a long time ago. Yeah, I I, I mean, I, it fascinated me. I think the first time I saw you present, and I think it, you maybe presented. Oh, I don't know which. One of the chapters or a version, um, you were with Jessica Benjamin at a mm-hmm. NPAP and it was on, oh, which two men, I forget which two men you describe here, but, um, and I was like, wow, this woman is really interesting. And I Googled you and I found this dissertation and I began to go through it and I was like, this is so creative. I, like, I love it. You know, I was like, wow, little red, right, little red riding hood. And as a, as a way of act, understanding which of these children was susceptible, which children. And then I, I think to myself, what were the enigmatic messages, mm-hmm. right? That, that different children, um, you know, you know, received right about, mm-hmm. about themselves, um, yeah. about, you know, the, from the mother's unconscious. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know something, I think that this is that there are a lot of problems with research also, right? Even with my research, because yeah. life is bigger than research. Right. I mean, I, I, I I think that that what what I like about the book is you know on the one hand you're talking about um, well I I think what I what what cap what captured my attention is this attempt to describe uh, what's enigmatic mm-hmm. um, and and you there are moments in the book where you say my attempt to put words to the enigmatic undermines what's enigmatic. Right. At some level, like it's not it, it, yeah. it transforms it from, uh, you know, from enigmatic to I don't maybe we would say to pragmatic. To pragmatic. Yeah. yeah. Because words are always necessarily pragmatic. Yeah. I mean, at least in, in the narrow frame that I put it, it's, it's the minute you talk, you narrow your experience. So there is something about the enigmatic that 
that almost contradicts words. Sure, sure. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, and therapy, right? In yeah. That sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? What do you? I, I, you know, I, I sense that there's a, a real strong turn in the last couple of years to the work of Laplanche here, stateside. Uh-huh. You know, in the, in this country, and would. Would you care to say something about that? Like any thoughts about, you know, the, the strong embrace, uh, of Laplanche, um, currently in American psychoanalysis is like a need being met. Like what's, what would you say is going on in the field? Um, wow, that's a good, that's a good question. Like, you know, like uh, own, obvious work. I mean, you know, there's, I know, uh, but you I, know, maybe a lot. I'll tell you, I, I'm not sure that I have the answer for that because it is enigmatic, <laughs> but, no. I think maybe, first of all, a lot of the people that bring it are not Americans, mm-hmm. uh, including me and Avi, oh, okay. um, that we, I mean, I grew up analytically in much more of a European culture. Right. Even my sessions were used to be 50 minutes and not back to back. Not anymore, by the way. Right. Uh, but I think there is something uh, more, you know, European, French, uh, in general, I think Lacan became bigger in in America, in, in New York especially, I think, lately. Yep. Uh, so I, I really wonder about that, and I'm happy about that because uh, it's it becomes it's, it's the whole conversation. I think in my book, I'm talking about uh, conversations between East and West, but I'm yep. thinking even in psychoanalysis, right, between America and Europe, the dark side. I you know that <laughs> in in some ways I. Come from more the, the light side and the positive side in in the American culture. It's talking about sex and sexuality. You know, there is a question. You know, cultural uh, question here. And and you know, you, you mentioned Jessica Benjamin, which uh, was, uh, as I mentioned, one of my mothers, my mentors, right. and she and I. The third chapter that is called. Excited idiot. Yes, that's right. It's it's based on a chapter that Jessica and I wrote together, mm-hmm. and I think that's the one that you heard us presenting yes, together. Also, the it too is. muchness of excitement, mm-hmm. and this chapter was translated to Spanish. And Jessica and in the it was published in the uh, International Journal for, right. Psych- for Psychoanalysis, and they translated it to Spanish, so that they had a Spanish edition. And at some point, they invited Jessica and I to present in some kind of an online discussion, online colloquium that is called something like debate, which basically even the name is invited inviting people to argue. So it's not as nice as the Arab colloquium that everybody's mostly agreeing with each other. <laughs> I mean, it is pretty hot there. Yeah. And uh, Jessica and I do not know a word in Spanish. And we were invited to this discussion and trying to figure out what they're saying through Google Translate. <laughs> and at some point, And the enigmatic, yeah. Exactly. And at some point we asked... Um, Andrea, one of my students, too, who, who is Chilean originally, to help us understand what's going on. And I think it's related to what you're saying. There was a lot of confusion of tongues and a lot of in, really interesting debate about, especially about what I define as the pragmatic. The question if the pragmatic even, even belongs to psychoanalysis or not, right? As, and people there said... Why affect regulation is even psychoanalysis? It's not about the unconscious. 
It's not about conflicts. It's not about and very traditional voices that argued. And it was a wonderful discussion, I have to say. Uh, we felt very, uh, in some ways, understood, although uh, I think a lot of people disagreed with us or felt like we are, you know, some American traditions that some of them did not, did not even know what, you know, things that are obvious to us right. here in New York, you know, right. the, uh, the, the notion of intersubjectivity and asked us to explain what intersubjectivity means. You know, it was, it was pretty amazing to see, to, to hear that dialogue. Well, you know, what's funny is as, as you're speaking, I just, I thought, my God, how come I didn't think of William James and pragmatism? Mm. I mean, I just, it didn't, the, the way in which you're using your, you know, sort of the enigmatic is embedded in the pragmatic and the pragmatic is also embedded in the enigmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's such, but it is, you know, of course, American pragmatism, uh, Richard yeah. Rorty. I mean, like there's such a tradition yeah. and yet your use of the word, <laughs> you know, pragmatic doesn't smack of any of that. To me. <laughs> um, so that's, that's kind of, that's uh, great. yeah, so it's, uh, it's surprising. Um, I want to ask you a question, actually. I mean, I know you, you've worked a lot with Jessica Benjamin and, you know, been very, um, uh, you know, influenced, um, by her work. And yet, um, you know, in this book, clearly, uh, you've, you've given motherhood a lot of thought. And in mm-hmm. fact, uh, you know, maybe, um, you know, sort of the, the frame of the book at some level is a rethinking of the impact of motherhood on both the mother and, and the infant and the later you right. know, the adult um, who comes, who, who, you know, crosses uh, the threshold into our consulting rooms. Um, so I sense that you're trying to, um, to really, to, to redress, to, you know, sort of take by the hand a theoretical, um, uh, sort of missing piece in the field of psychoanalysis mm-hmm. and thinking about motherhood. But mm-hmm. h- how would you say you're, you're thinking, I mean, Jessica Benjamin is known for, you know, saying that the mother has, a, you know, the mother is a subject. The child yeah. needs the mother to have, to be a subject, to have subjectivity. Her subjectivity is important, mm-hmm. but you, you go somewhere else. How would you describe um, the ways in which your work is, is different from um, Jessica's uh, thinking about, the impact of the mother um, on. Hmm. You know, I, I'll start with saying that I'm not sure it is completely different because it definitely starts there. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, I feel that working with Jessica personally, there is some, her influence on me was huge, especially her thinking about motherhood. While I was working with her, I became a mother. Mm-hmm. Right. I think I was. All right. Maybe I start working with her 10 years ago when right after I had my twins or my motherhood was very much part of our conversation. Mm-hmm. My, my own body, my children's body, and, you know, her as a mother, birth. A lot of my patients, you can see in the book, are giving birth. Yes. Being pregnant, right. right? There is a lot of there. Almost there is almost too muchness of mother and mother's body, and and you know I'm thinking about Chris Davis, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, the objection, uh, sure. right? Of it's it's just too much. It's 
too much breast milk and it's too much. And sometimes uh, people say, where's the father? Like, help, call the father, please. It's too much. <laughs> you know. And, you know, uh, somebody told me that when that they thought that th- there is something about the mother in the book, that it's almost like every chapter is let's talk about sex and my mother mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, let's talk about the enigmatic and my mother and my mother right and my, my mother and then of course the reference to dali and my mother my mother my mother I know, my mother. <laughs> <laughs> but there is some reparation there i think just the, or, just or the audience, i want the audience to know about the, the painting dali's uh, painting yes. the enigma of desire or my mother my mother my mother it's from 1929 and it's like Yes, yes. (laughs) And so I open, you know, in the introduction, I say something about it because only after I decided to, again, a little, a lot of uncanny uh, uh, things, when I decided that this is going to be the name of the book, I googled the name to see if anybody else wrote a book, uh, you know, if, if this book already exists. And what, and then I found, I didn't know about that uh, uh, Dali painting, and then I found it, and I was kind of, shocked when I saw that the subtitle was my mother, my mother, my mother. Right. And I thought, yes, that's it. <laughs> this is the, you know, this is the book. Uh, yeah. So, so that's, that uh, a lot about, about that, about the mother uh, and, and sexuality and the mother in some ways is maybe a correction to, first of all, to, to conversations about fathers and sons. That were so part of the mainstream, right. and Edip- Edipal and the father and the son were the center uh, of our our thinking, and and, and also about sexuality. That right. I feel like, all right, we talk about sex, but uh, you know, my mother, right? And you're you're talking about sexuality. I mean, I I, I read this book uh, as as perhaps um, filling in a gap in the relational psychoanalytic literature as regards sexuality and the mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask um, if you saw yourself as addressing sort of a cisura or a blind spot within that mm-hmm. school of thought. Not consciously. I didn't say, okay, I'm going to fill uh-huh. that gap. No. I went mostly after my own longings, you know, and what I felt. And a lot, this, this is a very clinical book. So I felt like a lot of where I come from is from, from my, from the couch, right? From my office, from my very profound connection with my patients, you know. So a lot of the people that I wrote about read what I wrote about them, commented on it. Uh, you know, there is something about the, the passion and and the love that that exists in in the womb, which is also related to the mother and the baby, right? About the dyad and 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 the desire. And so, consciously, I didn't say, "Let me fill that gap," but I I felt that something was missing for me. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think that's what really stands out is it's uh, is the way in which the body, mm-hmm. um, your body as an analyst, your um, sort of use of your own physical um, experience. You have an incredible, you have an incredible story, um, clinical story about uh, a patient reacting to your breathing. Mm-hmm. In which you, and then you experience your breath as, as constricted and, 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 and then you attempt to work with what's, what's happening that I'm, 
you know, my breath is being constricted while I'm with this patient. What's the, what's the, what's the, talk about the enigmatic message. Yeah. What's, what's taking place there? Um, yeah. and it's really, it's, it's, you know, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful clinical tale. And I love, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give the story away. You have to buy the book, but we're not going to, I'm not going to give you the ending. No it's happy. Spoilers. It's a happy ending. No but. Spoilers. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary the way in which, you know, the body and sort of the, you know, feelings that, um, uh, are, are hard to find words for. Now you don't, think in terms of uh, pre-edible and edible so much is my sense. Is that is that correct? You sort of... Yes, see- yes. Yeah. I actually challenge it mostly because I think, uh, you know, traditionally the, the, the pre-edible was considered more uh, primitive mm-hmm. and less developed. And the way that I, I argue in, in, especially, you know, in the book is that I don't see these two things as, as in a hierarchy, that one is more developed than the other. Uh, because I think the, the the mother and baby relationship is so is so rich and complex, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and more enigmatic. It's true. It's not. It's less about words. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's also. I mean, I, I got the sense that it's you know sort of both both and. There's a lot yes. of both and in the book. Both at both at once. Um, sort of in a low Waldian sense, you know, where you really get yeah. you know like nothing is ever you know. Uh, nothing, nothing is ever lost and it's both pre-edible and edible, um, elements, perhaps, if you want to put it that way, um, yeah. that, that interests you. Um, yeah. And you know, I want to tell, I want to say one more thing about that because I, because of what you said before about the body, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it a lot these days. And I think probably my, my next writing will be about that because, there is something about the enigmatic and the pragmatic that for me emphasizes the need for both. And, you know, there is something that we idealize about the body. There is a lot of writings about the body. But the truth is that as kids, the body is pretty disgusting, right? We don't want it. Too much body is not attractive. Right. So even when we deal with the body, we deal with it in some idealized way, even in psychoanalysis, you know, mm-hmm. we, you know, think about poetry, think about, you know, art, there is, there is something about making it beautiful. Yeah. And in fact, there is a lot of things that it smells bad sometimes, it looks bad sometimes. When you die, there is only body. So there is something about the balance. They have, they, they, it can't be, we cannot have too much body mm-hmm. in, in life in general, right. right? We have to find that balance between mind and body, between, uh, right, between the pragmatic and the enigmatic. Well, you're, but you're also very drawn, um, and this was, uh, Notable um, to me, I I read I didn't interview I did not interview Gohar um, Homanya I'm so bad my young poor yeah and, yes, and uh, yes. doing psychoanalysis in Tehran, but um, I did read the book and I was struck. You're both you know women who would I identify as as Persian. I, I is that correct? If I were to say my, that? my dad is from is from Iran. Yeah. yeah. So and and she really you know her book is, uh, is sort of a 
an, uh, you know, a an homage, I mean, to, to mm-hmm. the work of Kristeva. And I yeah. sense you're very drawn um, to Kristeva. Mm-hmm. And so at the risk of, of sort of being an essentialist here, I, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to I ask. I think many times of being an essentialist. Yeah. So, you know? <laughs> so we'll be essentialists together. I mean, yeah. do you, do you, do you, but do you think that there's something, um, and of course she wrote on Chinese women, right? So here we go. I mean, do you think that there's something in Kristeva's work that, captures a certain something about contemporary Eastern femininity or womanhood that I, I, I'm just, I was so struck by both yourself and, and Gohar being, um, uh, no, I think you're picking up on something real, you know, and I'll tell you what I think it is. Not too long ago, a student came to me from, uh, who was writing her dissertation and she came to me to be one of her advisors. Uh, and she was an, she is an Iranian, uh, woman and her dissertation was on the topic of women in Iran. And, and we talked about it and she came to me after she read my chapter, Sex in the Kitchen, mm-hmm. which is about Iran. And I have to say, yeah. unlike Gohar, I didn't live in Tehran, only in my fantasies and dreams. So I can only imagine. Uh-huh. And there is a piece of, you know, there is a piece of idealization in, in my writing about the East. I have to admit, even when I read it, I, I notice it. <laughs> Idealism, you know, something yep. about that thing, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, but, but also because it is, it's, this is where my grandmother that I really loved came from. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something that you're picking up on because mothers are the center of the way I grew up and my family grew up and, right. and my, and my, that woman who wrote about women in Tehran confirmed that to me. There is something about mothers that are in some ways the head of the family. Yeah. And in ways that I'm not sure is so visible. I think it's more enigmatic, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that, and that's what, that's why she decided to write this dissertation actually, I think, because it wasn't so clear that it looks like more on the surface that men are the dominant uh, right. people. But I think there was another layer, right? As always. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's not only men. It's also something about the maternal mm-hmm. and, and there is also something about maternal Eternal and 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 boundaries mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in the in sex in the kitchen I'm talking about uh, related to Kristeva about the boundaries the boundaries of the body I give some examples from literature uh, Persian literature right. where they talk about the, the how the mother penetrates the, her children's body and the children's body belong to her mm-hmm. right and think about it that our our children's body belong to us when right. they are born right we're allowed to uh, pick their nose, to wipe their butt, you know, and there is one point in their life when they say, mom, leave me alone, you know, yucky, (laughs) why why are you licking me to clean my face? Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Because they, and that's the point, you know, when we start celebrating their birthdays as belong to them and not, hey, that's the day I gave birth, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think in the first, second birthdays of my children, I used to celebrate like, I actually went, this time I went to the labor in a room and, you know, it's about me. <laughs> so at some point, it, their body belongs to them and their birthdays belong to them and right. it's about them. Right. And, and I think there is something about that related to Kristeva's ideas and related to the, you know, to everything I bring, the cultural piece, like especially from Iran, that about the mother penetrating, there is a story about the mother uh, 
penetrating her, her daughter's vagina, like sticking her fingers right. to see if the daughter had her period or not. Right. And that's from Dori Tobinian's uh, book. Uh, there is you know, something about the boundaries between a mother and, mm-hmm. uh, and the child. Yeah. That is less less rigid, or you could say less boundaryed. Well, you know, when you think about Kristeva and all the the abject, and the, and you write a lot about fluids, and Kristeva yeah. writes about fluids, and initially the child is, you know, just a, a certain kind of fluid, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> a fluid that eventually walks around, you know, and exu- and you have to deal with all their fluids. Whose fluids are they anyway? Uh. You know? So it's. <laughs> I love that. Her fluids are they anyway? But let's let's think, let's okay. You you do something else really uh, terrific, and I think uh, a lot more. Uh, I, I I think that a lot more um, may be written about this um, by you and by others who will take off um, from your thinking. This book is about autoeroticism, wouldn't mm-hmm. you say? At, yeah, at totally. Some, at some level, I had the idea that to have. Have an analysis with Galit Atlas. One would um, the on completion of the analysis, many things may have you know uh, come to the surface and been worked <laughs> through. But but your but your analyses have a real a, a sense of a, a, an interest and a possession of something autoerotic that they leave with. That is really the strong idea I had on, on, well. yeah. So can you talk about, I mean, you, and you also have different ideas about East and West, the difference between desire and sexuality that it's, it's a, you know, like an, like an interesting, um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, basket of, uh-huh. of things around autoeroticism. Can you say, can yeah. you say more about your thoughts about it? Yeah. First of all, I want to say writing a book is an autoerotic experience. Indeed. Absolutely. It's really, there is something very sensual about it. You know what I do sometimes, almost all the times, to tell you the truth, if I, to make sure that I like what I write, I read it to myself loud. Oh yeah, and that and when I read it, then I say, then I know, you know, if it's funny, I laugh. <laughs> you think it's a little mm-hmm. bit like a one, you know, this this psychotic, uh, you know, experience that somebody's reading something for to themselves, and and I laugh and I say, oh, this is dumb, <laughs> and I say, oh no, this is this is not the right tone. It has to be this. I I listen to the music. It's it's all like having sex with yourself. Totally. <laughs> so that's where I start. Uh, that's like, I. That's the kind of writer I am too. I have to read it aloud and walk around the house and like hear it, and that you know, it, yeah. and that it, it is very autoerotic. It's very, it's very exciting, and it's you're exciting yourself. You know, I think, and I think that's a goal. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's it's interesting. You know, I'm I'm thinking about uh, you were mentioning um, the difference between desire and sexuality, and I'm thinking about the. The difference between the ability to act sexually, to have a sexual act, to have sex, right? The permission to have sex yeah. and the permission to desire, and the, those are two things that I differentiate in the book. Yeah. These are not the same, yeah. and I, I talk about East and West as places that, generally, again, generalizing, there is. I think in our culture there is more permission to act sexually. You see young kids act sexually. They're not really in touch with their body, but it's an act. Mm-hmm. It's again, it's pragmatic. Right. And between the zone, you know, the realm of, of desire, where it's not always about the other. Judith Butler writes about that. Lacan writes about that. Right. It's not always own. You know, 
it, it's not only about the other. It's mm-hmm. also about us and about our own body and our, our own ability to desire. And, and so I try to differentiate the two. And I actually think that my reference to the East isn't, is not because I think it's, you know, it's not part of my idealization. I think sometimes it's the practical thing that there is no permission to act sexually mm-hmm. as much. And there is a lot more separation between men and, and women mm-hmm. or between, you know, so there is something much more, not only autoerotic, also homoerotic, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm, I'm trying to really talk about those, you know, all of those as, as in, in one, you know, as one thing. Well, what, what's, what's also coming to mind when I think about um, your writing on autoeroticism, it, mm-hmm. it's, Interesting, given that you know you're more part of, or you know, known to be more part of a relational frame, and yet, and yet, um, you're you're suggesting something else. It really reminds me, of course, you know, like of of Freud. Like, what does the baby want? The baby wants relief from, you know, it's it, it's an interesting privileging of the relate of a relationship with. Uh, with the self rather than, um, you know, something interpersonal. It's a very, mm-hmm. it's an interpersonal privileging, um, yeah. in, in your work that, yeah. um, although it, it, to some degree it, it is derived from a relationship, you are, you emphasize, um, something, something very intra as opposed to inter. Mm-mm, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's really some kind of integration in my mind. Uh, you know, my one of my study groups called our study group uh, uh, relational clanions. <laughs> you know, I don't know that there is such a thing, but that's for me that's the integration. And and a lot of my my thinking is about the capacity to love, the capacity to desire, which is something that is not only you know to classically we're t- we're thinking sometimes about about how much the, the child needs to be loved and how much we need to be loved by the other, what we need to get from the other. Right. And I'm, and it's true that sometimes my thinking starts more from the other direction, right, about how, which are related, right? You can't separate mm-hmm. the two. But mm-hmm. how much, you know, what is it, the, what is the capacity to, to, to love or to experience desire? And what does it mean about the body, the relation to the body? What mm-hmm. kind of tension you should, to- you can tolerate or should tolerate in order to desire someone else? Right. And in what way it is related to pain? Mm-hmm. You know, of course, we're going back to Laplanche here. Right. Okay? Right. Yeah. Right. What um in I think it's the second to last chapter, I guess it's the last chapter of the book, which is really um it's interesting. It's you're thinking about uh ideas of, about the future. Mm-hmm. Um about agency, uh working prospectively. We don't really um read i at least i don't read okay a lot about this about this these ideas in psychoanalysis of course we're sitting and listening to our patients and you know you, you can't help but to have like you know oh, the idea about the patient in the future but you're mm-hmm. trying you, you and i guess you and lou are yeah, it yeah. seems that he's very present in that in this chapter um on addressing the fu- the enigmatic future i think it is or i don't know yes um so what role does the enigmatic play in helping um, or what role can it play in helping our patients um, to dream? I think you say to dream the future. Um, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about that. First of all, yes, this is a chapter that was originally written with, with Lou, with Lou Aaron. 
and we published it in dialogues and it is actually it was the first chapter that uh, for our next book so this chapter a version of it not exactly that the way it is in my book but the version of that and of those ideas is going to be included in dramatic dialogues uh, our book mm-hmm. uh, and what we were trying to really think enigmatic and pragmatic I have to say uh, combined uh, about our the dreaming of our future and we and we and we think about enactments and the function of enactments not only the the resolving the enactment but actually the enactment itself as a way to rehearse for the future as a way to really practice and the ability to change and and something that happens in the future which is in some ways much more related to Bionian ideas yeah. than to Freudian ideas right uh, with the understanding the Bionian understanding right that the mind is really always striving to uh, toward health and development right and our our wish to develop and and to the next step. Uh, so I'm, so we were thinking really about how, how unconsciously, right, and enigmatically, we are always practicing for, for the next step, including, including death, you know, but in this chapter, we were not really talking about death yet. Uh, we are mostly talking about the, we talk about separations mostly, how the mind practices, you know, and we give their, uh, one of the clinical examples is really about a, a woman that leaves therapy, and and in retrospect, that was an enactment that helped her to to leave her husband. Right, right. Uh, to, to leave her husband. So that was, uh, and and of course, the other example, for Sophie's case, is about dreaming, uh, dreaming her her husband. Mm-hmm. And then, and it's a real story, you know, it's really, it's one of those things that happen that the woman is, the, the, the patient that I was describing, one of the, this patient actually really insisted that I include this in my book. And she was like, everybody has to know about this story because right. it was so uncanny, you know, that she was <laughs> dreaming. She had a dream about a guy and the next day she met that guy. Right. You know, he became her husband, the father of her children after many, many years where she was looking for relationships and, mm-hmm. you know. Well, so, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a real, I'm a real believer, you know, in uh, this, this thing that can happen in the, in mm-hmm. the consulting room where a patient starts to talk about something finally that they know that they really want and that they're really mm-hmm. interested in. And, and they're saying, and they're talking about something that they've never spoken about before. And, you know, and then it's not uncommon that within mm-hmm. the next like few weeks in one of the sessions they're like you wouldn't believe what happened but uh-huh. exactly. <laughs> i'm always like okay magic right uh-huh. but there's exactly that, magic yeah it's like it's but it is kind of like magic it's like okay what what is that i mean i, I i'm just thinking of a patient who has a hard can ask want finally says i'm gonna i i want to raise and a lot of work has taken place around her feelings about mm-hmm. money and this and that. She walks in after we have this, you know, several weeks of her talking about money and a raise and all these different feelings about it. She shows up at work and the boss gives her um, a really big gift and a raise. Uh-huh. And she says, but, but I, but I, 
<laughs> and I had this like thought, like, how many times have I seen this in like 20 years as a clinician? I was like, and it, in, of course, in my own life as an analysis, yeah, you know, I'm like, yeah. what is that? You know, can, and how, how do we explain that to the insurance company? You know, <laughs> that you're practicing for the future also. You know, practicing. I'm practicing for the future. You know? That's right. Treatment, treatment plan, practicing, for, practicing the future. for the future. Yeah. That, that actually, actually, they would probably like, you know, not, they'll probably give you like another like 10 sessions for that. We're practicing for the future. Okay. Right. Because we're, re- we're rehearsing for the future. Right. right. We're rehearsing for the, it almost sounds like cognitive behavioral therapy. We're rehearsing for the future. But I, but I mean, it was, but the book is interesting in that you go, you get to this place and I'm thinking about young and the future and uh-huh. something perspective. And then I, I thought, okay, that the book's over and I turn the page and there's death. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it was, I love the drama of it. First of all, I mean, it's like a two, it's like a two page, it's a two page, you know, pro or epilogue, prologue, whatever it's called. I'm so bad with those things, but an epilogue. And I was wondering, tell me about the decision. Cause it seemed like it didn't seem like it was tacked on. It made sense, mm-hmm. but it had a, dr- dun, 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 you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I just wanted to ask like, okay. And now, it's really funny because when you said you turn the page and there is death. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, like my daughter said, duh, what else did you think you're going to find when you turn well, the, the end page? of the book is death, you know, but there was death before the end of the book. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and because there is a lot of birth. Yeah. Right. And there is a lot of, of, uh, of birth and a lot of, um, I'm, I'm going back to, as I said before, death, my mother. You know, there is again, you know, that, that link to, to the vagina. There is a lot of vagina in the book and, uh, and to my mother and to the body and think about what we said before about the body, the body, the body. And, you know, and yeah. there is something that felt, it felt necessary. I have to say, I, it, well, it, wrote, it wrote itself. Well, it's also, I mean, perhaps, you know, the, Part of what makes mothers so terrifying is they're in charge of life, of life and death. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the decision to, um, I actually, uh, I have a friend uh, who's also Israeli. I've got to get you this essay of hers. Um, her name is Michal Tzion. She's an analyst. And mm-hmm. she's she's writing also about Kristeva, but she's writing about like the mother's decision, like the, the decision mm-hmm. to actually, you know, Get, to actually get pregnant, like she's just, oh, well. and it's it's real, it's it's really related in some way. I was like, oh, it's too bad you guys didn't meet, or you should meet and write mm. write a an essay together. But it's like the 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 feelings that are aroused in like you know that the mother can just get the woman can get pregnant, does she, you know, and that this is a decision, not a decision, unconscious. It happens. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's so much bound up bound up in just that forget the actually having the baby right absolutely yeah absolutely and you know i there is one chapter that we we didn't mention and that's my uh, the chapter breaks in unity which which i have a question about that i'm glad you said that (laughs) tell us about breaks in unity okay (laughs) breaks in unity is is an unusual chapter because it's a little different than the other chapters it's not based on the real case it's based on the movie before uh, the, the the three movies before 
midnight before uh, sunset, before sunrise. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I watched the third movie and the third movie was so sad to oh. me. And that's where she became, you remember that? Oh yeah. She became a mother and suddenly you see a broken woman. Yeah. And I, I suddenly recognized her and I recognized her eyes and I recognized her in each and every woman I know who gave birth. That feeling that there is something that broke. Mm-hmm. And it is not, and I'm not talking about trauma and I'm not talking about anything that is, you know, something you cannot repair or, you know, anything pathological. Right. I'm talking more about something existential, I guess. And that's, that's why I'm blamed of being an essentialist <laughs> because I feel like there is something existential about, about that crazy thing of getting a, a baby that grows inside your body and gets out. Right. You know, my five-year-old, oh, every morning she wakes up, she said, I will ne- I'm going to adopt a child because nothing is going to get out of the baby. <laughs> I will nothing never- like, this, like me is coming out of me. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> not going to happen. She said, not going to I said, all right, you don't have to, you know. Well, you have, you have a quote, actually. Um, I'm not, uh, this, this, I think this was my favorite chapter. I can't believe we didn't talk about it because this one, I, this chapter I thought was really, well, it's like kind of, it's, you know, there's something groundbreaking about what you're doing here for sure. And you write, uh, breaks in unity, capital B, capital I, capital U, breaks in unity <laughs> are a potential part of the female structure. And in that sense, a way to, to postulate this aspect of the woman's subjective position as a norm and not something to be viewed as exceptional, pathological or unique. Yeah. I was like, okay, all right. Now we're, you know, we're like, in the, you're like taking it on here, you know? <laughs> I mean, what, what do you think? No, I mean, I, I, I think, I, I think it's, it's, tr- it's a, it's a really interesting, th- you know, idea. Theoretically, it's like, okay, you know, it's, it's so far, um, what is it? It, it struck me as so unique. Um, you know, in, within within psychoanalysis, the attempt to theorize the body, you know, with Rosemary Balsam, like all the, mm-hmm. I was like, no, this is real. This strikes me as real. Like this breaks in unit, this break in unity, um, around, particularly around, uh, around motherhood and birth. Um, it, you know, as something that is unique, you're attempting to say something about what it is to, to live in a female body. Um, yeah. and, and there, and by the way, there is such a thing as yeah. a female body. I don't know if you know, but you know, I feel like that's, that's a way of thinking, you know, because there, when I said a norm, I mean that sometimes it feels like people say, you know, there is the body and there is, you know, we have hands and then, and then there is the woman that's exceptional. You know, it's like, it's phenomenal, but I feel like, "Mm, you know, it's, it's normal. Right. 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 No, I think that this is a real, this is a, a, a like a, a great theoretical kind of breakaway. I was like, whoa, this is exciting, you know? <laughs> Let's catch this wave and this should be further, I mean, I, I think further explored and, and thought about. Um, you know, so hats off to you for that. I was like, wow, okay. Thank you. You know, for this chapter is special, uh, for me, especially, for two reasons. One, because really it didn't start with a real patient, but with a movie, which was unusual. Mm-hmm. But somehow that, that chapter that did not start with the real patient, 
I get the most feedback as clinically helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people contacted me and asked me if it's okay to give a patient, you know, to let a patient read this, to give the patient the book, right. because there is something about uh, f- women's experience around uh, birth mm-hmm. that we, we there is no theory for for us, you know. No, we are no- less lonely. It, you know, that that's really it's really true, and I felt there is something like very um, sort of containing or like uh, writing it. You know, it was like writing something that was a wrong, so to speak, or like filling in a blank. Mm-hmm. That I was like, well, how come that blank hasn't been filled in for so long? There it is. You know, there was just something about like a missing piece Mm-mm. that this yeah. idea um, uh, began to address and. You know, I mean, I think because mostly, and that is actually is continuing Jessica's thought about the mother as a subject, mm-hmm. basically because mothers were objects. So the experience of birth is not, and and originally most of the theory was written by men. Right. So the, that combination left mothers as tools, you know, objects. Mm-hmm. And and I think there is there it, it's missing and and the theory there. And I think Rosemary Balsam is one of the the women that actually really scream that right. in her papers like something is missing guys right. there is something missing about <laughs> the maternal experiences right and also and also the vagina right mm-hmm. the vaginal mm-hmm. like it's like you know i think i the very first interview i did for new books and psychoanalysis was with um an, an a dutch a dutch analyst i think and her name is hendrika freud and in her book she mm-hmm. says and if we and if we don't teach girls about more or less, she says straight out. If we don't teach them that they have vaginas, how will they ever know? More or less, like it's. <laughs> I love that. You know, I don't know that I completely uh, agree with that, but I, but it's also if there aren't words for something, uh-huh. then you know if it doesn't also uh, if, if it remains only enigmatic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you say that, I'm thinking that they will know. Yeah. We all know at the end that we have vaginas, but sometimes we know it's through men. Right. You know, they say, hey, vagina, right. you know, or through, you know, through the other. And again, I'm going back, I guess, into my auto erotic. No, no, you, you don't, you, you, you do not want your, your female patients to discover only through the other, their bodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, it's very, very, it's, it's really clear. Um, in in your work. Listen, my dear, we have to stop. Really? Like yes, because because <laughs> I don't know. It's like already we're already five and almost six minutes oh. over the you know. Yeah. And uh, can I? What can I say? <laughs> we're having fun, and this yeah. was this was really um, really fun. fun. So uh, so it's uh, just to the listening audience. Um, there's going to be a, this is a, sort of I'm interviewing a number of, of Israelis. And so the next book up I'm trying to get to is Orna Ophir's book, um, which is uh, on um, the treatment of uh, psychosis, schizophrenia in America in the post-war period. So she's another uh, Israeli analyst here, as is Galit, an Israeli analyst. And then there's another book, and I can't remember his name. This is terrible. Aner, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Aner Govrin. Thank you so much. I knew you would know. Yeah. And, I, and Aner's book is up on deck. So this is like uh, a few summers ago, I did like the summer of men and masculinity. This is the summer of Israeli analysts, like, apparently. So um, so the, that's where that's where I will be headed um, to, to let my listeners know. And Galit, thank you so much. Thank uh, you, Tracy. We I look, really enjoyed it. We look forward to your next book. And, uh, and uh, I don't know, just thanks for being with us. It was really a terrific interview. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye, listeners, for now. 